You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Right now, <laughs> we have our own turkey in the studio. I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. You got me last week. I'm getting you first this week. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. <laughs> good morning, Zeb. It's a great day, right? <laughs> How are you? Good. It's going to be a good week. Good week to get together. You've got the whole family got coming. everybody. Six kids, their spouses, and 13 grandkids. So, And uh, have you made reservations for the day after to get out of town? <laughs> oh, it's good. It, it's, we have a good time. Do you as a grandfather have the patience for 13 grandkids all the time they're there? Uh, sometimes I may go out to my shop and then do what? <laughs> uh, and then go back out and come back in. <laughs> no, they're pretty good. We, we get along pretty good. They all play together really well. Really? Yeah. So I don't have to entertain them. Well, yeah, well, that would be quite a chore in itself. <laughs> it would. It okay. would. Yep. What are we going to do today? We're going to talk about Gold Rush. We're going to talk about Wells Fargo. We're going to talk about a robbery that was kind of a bungled robbery, which okay. tended to happen. So, you know, gold was discovered in California. Obviously, the news swept through San Francisco like a tornado. It was the spring of 1848. News had just reached the little town of 800 people. Can you imagine San Francisco? 800 people. That was a long yeah. time ago. But uh, James Marshall had discovered a few gold nuggets at Sutter's Sawmill in the American River Canyon. So half the men in town and half the sailors from the ships in the harbor grabbed a shovel, they grabbed their gold washing pans, and they headed out for the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Hmm. By the spring of 1849, the California gold rush was on in earnest. The early arrivals, they swarmed like a bunch of ants into every canyon, every creek or river that flowed down from the high sierras and they state claims so sandbars were ripped into and you can just picture this dozens of gold crazed prospectors kneeling with their washing pans and the, the strike was great it was a really good well, were there people that actually made a lot of money oh yeah yeah uh, i well let me just tell you on some sandbars the gold deposit was so heavy that a man might pan out a thousand dollars worth of dust in a single day Wow. Back then, that was pretty good oh, money. heck yes. But claims were divided and then redivided until some were so small that they could be covered by a blanket. I mean, just a little uh, 10 by 10 claim that you could dig up and still get... Get gold. Someday you got to explain to me how they staked their claims. Yeah, that's a little fuzzy to me, too. Yeah. So, you know, California was then a new possession of the United States, and there was no written law yet that had been established. But strangely enough, uh, there wasn't lo- much law that was needed, because in that first great rush, every man was so busy panning gold or hunting for it that there was no thought of robbery. A man might sleep soundly with his gold poke on the ground beside him and have no fear of it being stolen during the night. You're kidding. Well, one of the early stage drivers uh, on his first trip from a mining camp to San Francisco, he was alone, unarmed, carrying gold dust worth more than $200,000. No gun? By himself. 
Yeah, oh that's how goodness. you know how it was. But this all changed, obviously, as the stampede reached its height. Uh, the early comers they soon had all the good claims, and the late comers didn't have really anything. So the inexperienced usually became discouraged and returned to the homes. The shiftless migrated by thousands to San Francisco going from 800 to 25,000, and they claim it was the wickedest city in the world really? just in those couple of years. My things haven't changed. <laughs> by, by 1851, hardly a day passed without at least one murder being committed. Robberies were common, and no stakes coach carrying gold was safe. So I'm going to tell you about a guy, a driver by the name of Cal Olmsted. Mm-hmm. He was a driver for the Telegraph Stage Company. Well, just picture this. He climbed up into the high seat of a stagecoach, and it was actually a few minutes after midnight, because they ran 24 hours. At his feet was a heavy iron express box, and picture this. It was fitted with these massive bronze hinges, a hasp, and a, and a huge padlock. So this was a well uh, a safe box, I guess you could say. Okay. But inside it lay a buckskin sack filled with gold dust worth $3,500, and it was going from the mining camps over to San Francisco. Okay. So Cal Olmsted, he was actually considered one of the best drivers on the Sacramento stage line, and, you know, he was a bit of a showman. He never drove into town or out of it with his horses, at, le- at least at a high gallop. He'd go charging out of town on a gallop, and he'd come riding into town. And this was with the stage? With the stagecoach. Really? You know, just a grand entry and a grand yeah. leaving, but uh, he was very conscious of his horses. So uh, he would trot. He, when it come to hills, he would just walk them up the hill and rest them. He was very co- uh, cognizant of But he'd of run horses. over old ladies and people in the street. In the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the stage was due in Nevada City at 5 o'clock in the morning, but Cal Olmstead was well ahead of time. He had a full hour left in which to cover the last seven miles, but he had a 1,500-foot climb up the canyon wall, which was kind of steep, and he wanted his horses fresh enough to make a good, fast race into town. Well, he had nearly reached the top of the hill uh, north of Nevada City when out of the thicket of Chaparral leaped three heavily masked and armed men, a small one, a big guy, and a, a medium-sized guy who was the leader. Okay. Now, this is where stupidity comes in. Oh, right? stupidity. So, yeah, see if, you can, see if you can get this, Zeb. Okay, here we go. Okay. So I don't like the way you phrased that. <laughs> Everybody listen. See if you can get this. <laughs> so the leader says, get down, Cal, and keep your hands up. Call him by his first name? Call him by his first name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Stupid number one. Yes. So the Iron Express box that held the gold dust was too heavy for the bandits to carry and too strongly built to just be broken open. So the leader, who called him Cal, uh, only a local man would have known his name, and only a bungling amateur would have been stupid enough to use it, which he did. Yeah. Well, it gets worse. Really? It soon became evident to Cal that the bandits knew the strength of the Iron Treasure Box and had come well prepared to open it. So the big bandit, uh, he was guarding the passengers, ordered them out of the coach, and he herded them together and Cal to the back of the stage. Meanwhile, the smallest of the three unhitched the horses, uh, and the leader brought out a pair of sledgehammers. Okay. Sledgehammers. Sledgehammers. Big sledgehammer. So together they climbed up on the coach and attacked this iron box with sledgehammers. They were going to pound it open. All right? Okay. It's probably stupid number two. Yeah. After a few minutes of useless pounding, the leader straightened up and ordered, quote, George, 
Fetch me that there can of gunpowder and then fuse it. So he called the one of the bad guys by name. George. George. <laughs> Stupid hmm. number three, right? Yeah. So the little high woman, he scuttled back into the brush, brought out a black can and scrambled onto the couch. And for several minutes, the two knelt over the iron box. The yellow light of a match flickered uh, for an instant and a fuse sputtered. And oh, the boy. bandits jumped to the ground and ran. Here we go. They were barely among the bushes when an explosion just rocked the coach. The driver's seat jumped high in the air. Sheets of leather and wood and all that sailed away, but the iron box was still unharmed. May I ask you stupid question four, please? <laughs> okay, go for it. Why did they unhook the team from the stagecoach? I, 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 I don't know. I, I mean, I assume that doesn't maybe, make sense to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they knew they were going to use dynamite, didn't want to. Well, they the weren't that smart to know no, anything. They, they weren't. Well, when the bandit leader discovered that his carefully laid pan, plan had failed, he screamed again, "George, poor George, <laughs> fetch me the rest of that there powder and some heavy rocks." And then he says, "Bob, you keep them passengers covered." So they were pretty well all named. Yeah. <laughs> So, in desperation, he poured all the remaining powder around the great bronze padlock, covered it with stone, lighted the fuse, and jumped for safety. Look out. Well, the explosion crashed with a thunderous roar. The front end of the coach flew apart in splinters, and the treasure box plunged down to the road. Its lock and everything was blown to bits, but the buckskin bag of gold was undamaged. So they got the gold. They did get the gold. Yeah, the bandit leader grabbed it. He tossed it over his shoulder, took off. He and his partners uh, took off. Now, here's another guy I want you to remember his name. Steve Vernard, okay? Vernard. Vernard. He is the town marshal at Nevada City. Okay. And this, now we continue with him. Yeah. So his first chore each morning was to clean and oil his most prized possession, one of the few Henry repeating rifles. Those were nice yeah. nice rifles. I have one. Oh, yeah, those are nice. But in a tube mounted beneath the barrel, it carried 15 extra cartridges. Mm-hmm. And in his hands, he, he was an expert with this Henry. Uh, again, one of the finest rifles ever desi- designed. And Steve Bernard was an expert with it. Well, it was just getting light, and Steve Bernard was cleaning his rifle when Cal Olmstead, who had gotten the horse uh, uh, from the stage and came running into the marshal, threw the door open and, and said, uh, you know, we've been robbed, we've been robbed. Well, Steve Bernard, he just kind of said, said uh, sit down, son, and tell me again right from the start what happened. Well, the marshal said, now ain't that curious, the big one was Bob and the little one George, you say. Mm-hmm. Well, there ain't no two ways about it, that has to be Jack Williams. Bob Finn and George Moore. So he already knew who... He knew who it was? Sure. They, they were from that town. I mean, they were partners. Or they were hung around together. And they were still there? The, the three bandits had taken off. Oh. They they'd headed out. So, so here we go. So Steve Bernard, the sheriff, with a posse of uh, volunteers, led the way straight down the steep mountainside into this place called the South Yuba Canyon. Now, near the bottom of the canyon, Steve Bernard scattered his posse to hunt for footprints. But it, it was he who actually found the foot, footprints. So he followed the tracks less than 100 yards. Uh, now... The amateur robbers had discovered they were being followed, and in a panic, they had raced for the river where their feet would leave no tracks on the unwashed rock. Okay, so they that was kind of a smart move, sort of. But if he stopped to gather his posse, he would lose the thieves. So without hesitation, the marshal just went on by himself after the three bad guys. Now, 
for a single man to follow three well-armed and desperate criminals into this country would seem a little foolhardy. Uh, I'm not going to say stupid, because he was a smart guy. But knowing they were being followed, they could easily ambush him, kill him before he'd had a chance to raise his rifle. Uh, but Steve Bernard, was, he wasn't foolhardy. He knew what kind of outlaws he was following, and he knew how they would behave. He so, probably had coffee with them. <laughs> well, he, he probably did. He, yeah. I mean, he knew him from back in town. Yeah. And, like I say, he, he knew the guys and probably knew the, uh, the total IQ of all three put together. Added up to one uh, hand. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but he figured they'd run for cover, they'd hide out, they'd find, uh, they'd fight back if they were cornered. So they were desperate. He he figured that was that would way it would be. Well, there was a a place called Myers Ravine. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's and it's a it had granite walls that uh, rose up sheer for a hundred feet or more on either side. So picture this: he's down in this ravine called Myers Ravine. There's a, a a pretty hefty stream or maybe even almost a river running down the middle of this. Down the middle of it. And on each side is these steep, steep uh, sides. Okay. okay. So it's steep and a solid rock floor that had a bunch of boulders. Uh, and for better hiding places, uh, few, uh, could, few could be found other than with all these rocks and stuff. Yeah, so, but was it a box canyon? No, but they could keep going up. I yeah. see. So uh, anyway... Uh, the sheriff Steve Bernard was positive that Williams and his frightened men were heading for this ra- this ravine. I see. So he didn't bother with following the tracks, but cut straight for the mouth of this ravine. So, from the melting snow and the runoff from the rain of the night before, this Myers Creek was in flood stage. I mean, it was really roaring down through this through this little ravine. So. Here he is, a rain of flying spray soaked him to the skin as he climbed carefully upward, balancing himself with one hand and holding his rifle with the other. He left his horse at the bottom. Yeah, because, I mean, you couldn't ride a horse up okay. through here. Right. Yeah. So he was watching for any slight movement. I mean, he was really watching ahead of me. Obviously, he had to. So he watched for the occasional scratch on the stone that would be made by a hobnail boot. I mean, he was a pretty smart tracker, so he was kind of, and so he figured they were still ahead of him up this ravine. Well, far up the ravine, a granite island stood like a mighty fortress in the center of Myers Creek. So a great big huge boulder was right in the middle of this creek with water going each side of it, okay? So the waters divided and went around at each side. Now, in a 15-foot waterfall, but clinging to the rock with feet and knees in one hand, Steve inched his way upward to the top of this falls. Now, so picture this. There's a big, huge log that was wedged from the canyon wall to the island, formed, which formed a natural bridge going out to this huge boulder that's in the middle of the creek. Okay, and he's up above that. And he's right at it, right to where the, this uh, big old uh, tree has, has fallen over onto, oh, okay. this, onto this rock. All right. So he first stopped to check and cock his rifle, and he edged cautiously across this wet, slippery bridge. As he stepped off the log and passed a shoulder of stone, he came face-to-face with Jack Williams. Uh-oh. Leveling a cocked forty-four revolver at him. Beyond Williams and above him, Bernard glimpsed a, a, a Bob, and he was also raising a forty-four to take aim. Steve Bernard fired his first shot before he'd brought his rifle fully to his shoulder. He fired the second. The first made a bullseye of Jack Williams' heart. The second caught Bob Finn just above the right eye, and he fell with that buckskin bag of gold at his feet. 
Uh-oh. So there's one guy left. One guy left. George. 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 Lonesome George. George. He had not crossed to the island, but in being scared, he was trying to scale the wall of the canyon. I mean, picture this. It's a steep canyon. You're not going to crawl out of Why there. Why didn't he run towards either of the exits? <laughs> well, there was no sign. Huh. You know, they, like I said, there. George wasn't real bright. No. So Bernard sent a warning shot into the wall above him because he could see him. But Moore stopped only long enough to fire two shots. Well, Steve Bernard's second shot was no warning, and Moore's body pitched down the canyon wall and into the creek. Well, the stage was robbed shortly uh, after 4.30 in the morning. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Steve Bernard brought the buckskin bag of gold dust into the Telegraph Stage Company's Nevada City office. No kidding. So Jack Williams and his followers were fairly kind of representative of the California's earliest robbers. Most of them were bungling amateurs. Uh, what year was that again? Uh, about 1851, wow. right in there, yeah. Okay. But, uh, like I say, most of them were amateurs. They'd been failure in their lives, and they were no match for a sheriff like this, Steve Bernard. I mean, this guy was sharp. He knew what he was doing. And so, but there, there wasn't a lot of Steve Bernards, and there was a lot of bungling robbers. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they were successful in making the robberies and their getaways. The, the prospectors uh, who struck it rich at the diggings found themselves, they were kind of in a dilemma. Because if they kept their gold dust at their claim, they were constantly in danger of being murdered and robbed. So what do you do? Well, if they were lucky enough to get their dust to a stagecoach office and ship it to, Sa- to a San Francisco bank, then their chance of losing it to the robbers was less. Were they given, this is a dumb question on my part, but were they, the miners, given a notice of receipt of their gold dust so that the liability for the loss was passed automatically onto the company in case there was a robbery from that point on? You know, that's a good question because the stage drivers were just the stage drivers. So when they handed this stuff over to the stage driver, the question would be, did he give them some kind of a receipt on how many, how much weight there yeah, was? Yeah, I or? mean, was the, was the stage company like Wells Fargo, or was it a small... Uh... Well, all. Some Wells Fargo, but there was a dozen, uh, dozens of other stage outfits. Well, that's that what were... I'm wondering, if they assumed the risk of having the money for a reimbursement if they were robbed. I, and that's a good question. I don't know. But... I'm assuming, too, that when it did get to the bank, whatever bank it was, then they would make note of, okay, I've got $300 worth of gold dust from a miner. Yeah, but would you, as a miner, and me, I wouldn't want to give it to somebody else to say, gee, I hope it makes it three-hour stage. Right. that that'd be I think that was when they were really nervous if oh and I don't wow. know that Wells Fargo ever reimbursed anybody that was robbed yeah so but you know the early amateurs were soon to be followed by some pretty good professionals there was a guy named Rattlesnake Dick I think we've talked about him he was kind of the king of the California robbers there's a guy named Fighting Tom Bell he had a bunch of cutthroats that followed him uh, Black Bart he was kind of what they wasn't he originally from Idaho. You know, one of those guys was, and I can't I, I remember I think which it was one. Black Bart. Wasn't he from around the Weezer area? It could have been. The problem with Black, the name Black Bart is there was two or three guys that claimed be, to be Black Bart. Yeah. So that one was a little fuzzy on who really was the original. But So there were really only two men in the United States who could successfully solve the gold miner's dilemma. That was Henry Wells and William Fargo. 
Mm-hmm. So, but up until 1852, Wells and Fargo had all they could do to take care of their rapidly growing express business back east. So they had a really a thriving business back east, which I didn't realize that. I thought it started out in the west. Yeah. Um, but they, they had a really good business going back east, and they saw California, San Francisco, and they thought, okay, this this looks like a, a good place to go. So that's when they headed out, sent some stagecoaches, hired the drivers. But Henry Wells was actually born in 1805, and William Fargo was born in 1818. And like I say, they kind of had a monopoly back east with uh, along the Erie Canal. Uh, and uh, in 1852, that's when they incorporated Wells Fargo and Company and went into the business in California. I still want to do a program. <clears throat> a program. Pardon me. I still got this cold. I still want to do a program as to how they figured out and adhered to the different mining claims. I mean, I don't understand how they did that. You know. They didn't survey each and every one of them. No, and that was that was uh, to what I recollect is that they would have a landmark. Okay, like say, is it good so much in a radius around that uh, mark, or, or or they might say uh, from this from the riverbank here a hundred feet to the west, a hundred feet to the east, uh, south, or I, yeah, I, I mean, were there set uh, standards of like you said, a hundred feet this way, a hundred yeah. feet that way, or whatever? I mean, I've often wondered that. I see on TV and the movies, you know, they're going to stake a claim. Well, how was this claim staked? Right, and what was their circumference around where they did put the stake? And, and I think it was different for mining as opposed to farming and ranching. So like the Oklahoma land rush. Yeah. So that was, uh, as I understand it, when you staked your, your land claim, it had a, a distance around that. Um, so but, many acres. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but the gold miners, the pan, guys that were panning gold, and up in the Klondike, they just had an area maybe only 20 feet by 20 feet. Yeah, and see, you said they came in various sizes. When I wonder, when you say you're going to stake a claim, I mean, how do you go about saying that you want so big a claim? I don't understand all that. You know, and I, of all my reading, I have never really run across anything that says this is exactly how it happens. So I, that's a good one. I'm, I'm going to do some research on that and see if I can figure that out. Okay. So Because you always hear of claim jumpers. Right. You know. Exactly. They kill the guy and yeah. put their, cl- their claim stake in there. And, yeah. yeah. So that, that's a good question. I, I, that is kind of a fuzzy thing. Okay. Do, you want, do you want to see a picture of, of Wells and Fargo? I do. I, I probably... Oh, they're not anything like I thought. You know, all the people of that era, they look just like Ulysses S. Grant. They do. Yeah. Long beard, long hair. We have a caller with a quick comment. I've only got about 30 seconds. Call her real fast. Go ahead, please. That's okay, Zeb. As as a miner and have been for over 50 years, I can give you all those figures, but I won't do it right now. I'll catch you later. Hey, call next week on the program, would you please? Uh, hey, another thought. Would you go to my webpage, dr-history.com, and there's a, a button to make comments. Just hit that comments, and you can send me an email. That would be great. I'd love to know more about that. Thank yeah. you, caller. God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey, Doc, we're out of time. I mean, really out of time. Okay. I appreciate your being on the program. Oh, it's been fun. And, and you have a great Thanksgiving and, with your family this week. I will, and you the same, and don't get your claim jumped. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm safe. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks so you much. Bet. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.